Hello there, and welcome to the Night Gallery Podcast. My name's Christopher Brown. So for this special, uh, the first Night Gallery Podcast I've done in two years, and in fairness, it's probably going to be a one-off, I wanted to talk about something that isn't actually Night Gallery. It was the Christmas after Twilight Zone had finished, and Rod Sterling had another project working on. It was a massive commercial free production to celebrate Christmas. Based on Dixon's Christmas Carol, this was a very different offering to that classic work, though. Or indeed, very different to what Salem really had become known for. But this was a huge production, an incredible director, an all-star cast and beautiful music. A Carol for Another Christmas was a huge production. One that should have been a ten-pole show for over the holiday season. But something happened. And the show was only telecast once for nearly 50 years. It's been slammed as a folly, criticised as a downer, and torn apart by many. But tonight, I want you to reassess Rod Zalen's story and delve into what is, in fact, a bit of a flawed Christmas classic. And that's what's known these days as a cultural exchange. You know, Fred, for a fairly talented professor of history... You seem to be a little naive as to the current political climate of the native country of this professor, whatever his name is. Are you serious? Stop asking me questions. You know the answers to, nephew. Do you know what he teaches? Do you know what Korzeniowski and Harris both teach? 18th century European literature. What's that got to do with politics? I don't know. And I'm not interested in finding out. Get smart, boy. We've been digging his kind out of the woodwork for years. You don't really expect me to be a party to inviting one of them in here now, do you? Ah, <laughs> no. Now he stays on his side of the fence and Harris stays on ours. Get used to the idea. When you finally go, that'll be your epitaph, won't it? Here lies Daniel Grudge on his side of the fence. Well, get used to this idea, Uncle. There are certain fences the world can no longer afford. Quite a wall through Berlin, I've heard tell. Exactly. A fence. And who put it there? You think it's right? All right, Fred. Turn it off. Right now. There's only one side I'm on. First, last, and always. Our side. Don't you ever forget that. And spread it around. I want all the members of your various domestic and international orders of the bleeding heart to know precisely where Daniel Grudge stands. Because anytime you and or one of your fuzzy fellow do-gooders tries to get me, or friends of mine, or my city, state, or my country involved in any of your so-called causes, then I intend to be there every time with a body block that'll throw all of you flat on your involved butts. So A Carol for Another Christmas was um, made in 1964, an American TV movie. It was scripted by Salem. It was distinctly designed to be a modernization of Dick's A Christmas Carol. But rather than Dickens' story being a, a lecture or a sermon about the need to be kinder to our fellow man, this was, um, you know, on a small scale about, uh, you know, we were effectively talking about wealth and landlords and greed in Dickensian London or Victorian London, I should say. This is a plea for global cooperation between nations, a wish, a cry out that we step away from the brink of war. It was telecast only once, though, on December 28th of that year, 1964. 
It's notable for a few things. It was the only TV movie ever directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. And this was the first film in which Peter Sellers appeared after suffering a near-fatal heart attack after his marriage to Britt Eklund. Sellers is probably one of the best things in this film. Although the actual film itself is starred by Sterling Hayden, who appeared in Sellers in Doctor Strangelove. He's the guy who talks about his precious bodily fluids. And in here, he is our Scrooge-like character. Merry Christmas, by the way. Yeah, so it is. And tonight, especially tonight, I am in no mood for the Brotherhood of Man. You mind? I've heard that speech. And heard it. Oh, I've had it with you, Fred. With all of you, I've had it. Right up to here. Mind your own business. And let everybody else mind theirs. Your responsibility happens to be your classroom. Not classrooms in Krakow, Poland, Butte, Montana, or Johannesburg, South Africa. Do you insist upon making it a better world? Won't you die happy until you do? Do you insist upon helping the needy and oppressed? Is that some kind of an itch that you can't stop scratching? Then tell them to help themselves. Let them know the cash drawer is closed and make them believe it. You'll be surprised how much less needy and oppressed than needy and oppressed turn out to be. But you've heard that one before. And heard it. Now, I can't change you, and you can't change me. So just stay out of my way, Fred. So the film was presented without commercial interruption, which is a big deal. And it was something called United Nations Special. Now, the money for it was came from the Xerox Corporation, or was a sponsorship anyway. And the idea was it was going to be a fair, it was the first of a series of uh, TV specials sponsored by Xerox and with the um, United Nations kind of message embedded in them. A promotional tool, as it were, for the work of the UN. Now, this was Joseph Mankiewicz's first work in television. And it was broadcast on ABC. It was publicised as not having an, as having an all-star cast, which kind of hilariously meant that some certain supporting cast members were were not actually kind of released to the public for because they weren't actually all-star. It was shot in New York City and produced for ABC. And um, the underwriting it will actually cost a huge amount of money at the time, four million dollars. And it was that money which enabled it to be shown without commercial interruption. However, it was, as I said, only shown once and only recently resurfaced when TCM showed it in 2012 over the Christmas period. You've already heard some of the, uh, the music that makes it stand out. In this case, Henry Mancini. So why was it only shown once and why all the negativity? Well, there's a lot of reasons why people didn't get it or didn't like it. But I think it's easy just to kind of explain the story and kind of explain the time. And we'll go from there. So in Sterling's update of the Dickens tale, we have an industrial tycoon, a guy called Daniel Grudge, who's starred by Hayden. 
Now, he is incredibly struggled. He's struggled continuously with the death of his son in the war. He was killed on Christmas Eve in 1944. And that's Marley, played by Peter Fonda. Now, Grudge is effectively an isolationist in his views now. And um, he pours scores on American involvement in international affairs. Now, he is then visited by three ghosts, as you probably would guess. The ghost of Christmas past, which is Steve Lawrence, who takes him back in time through to a World War One troop ship. Now, here we see effectively something that we normally see in these kind of things. Dead bodies, or, or coffins anyway. I think, imagine it being the, the season and um, seeing eff- effectively a, a, tr- a ship covered in uh, covered in coffins and it's an unpleasant reminder i think for the audience i think it and for me personally this is something that still sits to this day um in our modern times we don't really think about the human casualties on our veterans who come home in a, in a damaged way instead we kind of you know brush it under the carpet uh, you know, if, if you if you don't uh, vet, veteran help for people who you know who kind of slip through the cracks is always sketchy at best, to, and that's that includes in the UK. But um, there's something notable as well from probably from certainly the second Iraq War. But since we've start kind of started viewing this kind of stuff on TV in those kind of green shots, and there's an element of isolation and distance, the concept that people actually die is become more and more detached. Sailing in this definitely tries to push you back, and he starts off with a pretty simple idea that we think we can all get behind and agree that no matter which side you're on, um, the, pe- the the bodies that come home are always invariably of young men. Now, I think that's interesting also in a modern state at a point of view of, um, you know, how often do we actually see the coffins coming back of our dead soldiers from the last two wars? So I can understand why this particular moment is, um, kind of disagreed with the, uh, you know, kind of probably rub people up the wrong way, if I was being honest. And certainly, you know, a contributor, a contributor to the fact that people see it as a downer. Lead the troops. They're dead. Killed in action. Chateau Thierry, Bella Wood, Lamont. How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Perry? They saw Perry. Very briefly. Lafayette? They were there. You talk like the AEF. What's your name? I'm all the AEFs. Also, BEFs, the Poilus, the Huns, the Ruskies, etc. Gallipoli, the Crimea, even Waterloo. If you care to go back that far. You get the picture, Chief? I'm all of them. I'm the one who rallied around the flag. Any flag. All flags. See what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no names and all names, huh? <laughs> you know... I haven't heard that one since the radio programs in the 30s. Your name is uh, Joe, Tony, Izzy, Pat. All one and the same. America the melting pot, right? Wrong. I'm not getting across to you, I can see that. 
Who said only Americans, poet? I'm the dead, all the dead. And indeed, um, as you can hear from that, this the, the script is incredibly verbose. Effectively, it's really four conversations that take place over 90 minutes between two characters. Um, not necessarily the same two characters, but they've all, they all involve um, Hayden, Sterling Hayden, in a, 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 at the heart of them, as he basically debates his point of view with various other people. So what happens next is uh, we're off the boat and we are um, in 1944 and it's uh, Grudge's memories of that time. And um, we have a little drama that's played out in terms of what he sees and what he remembers from that time. It's still a past, but it's um, more, obviously more recent and it's probably more fresh in people's minds. And this is where Salem really starts to start hitting home and really cranking up the incredible sadness and the real horror that he wishes to speak about. A, 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 another debate between uh, our, our, the, our man in the, in the presence uh, and, um, and the ghost. But the thing that really marks it out is effectively that it shows or attempts to show or alludes to really dead kids deform kids and the impact of Hiroshima and um, it's effectively a memory that um, that our man Grudge has uh, and he's reminded that he sees it in a far cleaner way than it actually was so they get down to the dirt and the grit and the horrors that those bombs did arguing from two sides one side says Yes, we should have done it. And the other side says, yeah, but dead kids. Uh, Good morning. Do you speak English? Yes, Commander. I do. Uh, Grudge is my name. My cruiser's in Yokohama. This is Lieutenant Gibson. She's attached to our headquarters there. Tell me, Doctor, who had that lovely voice? That is Sachiko. It means child of happiness. Sachiko. Doctor, was she? She was one of the group of schoolgirls. They're clearing away fire lanes when the bomb fell. Would you care to meet them? They're very lonely here. They enjoy company. Thank you. I must tell you that when the plane flew overhead, these children looked up at the sky. Their faces were upturned to the blast. They suffered what we call flashbands. It is a term we use to describe instantaneous thermal radiation. How badly were they burned? They have no more faces, Commander. We've got the ghost of Christmas present. It's played by Pat Hingle. Now, Pat Hingle's probably known these days for uh, appearing in... um, the uh, Tim Burton uh, Batman films, but he's a little long and industrious career. Now, The Ghost of Christmas Presents is uh, incredibly tough. Tough watch. Um, but not for the same reasons that we had with um, the scene that's just gone before it. We're in a war room kind of set, and it's set up like a massive Christmas dinner. It's kind of similar to... Um, 
the story, the original story, in terms of the fact that you know uh, the, the Ghost Christmas Presents is, is surrounded by luxury, and um, in this case, effect, what we have is a long, quite drawn out arguments between the two parts, where Ghost of Christmas Present says, "Your viewpoints can't continue anymore. We are at a stage now where we could destroy each other." And it's really, I mean, it's, it's a breaker to kind of give you breath before you go to the next more dramatic bit. Um, but at this stage, it really is, it is very much a, a lecture from sailing, kind of saying enough's enough. And not a lot of people, I think, would particularly appreciate at this stage around the 45 minute mark, 50 minute mark, having that beaten around the head with. A lot of this is illustrated in terms of, you know, um, quite heavy-handed metaphors. It opens with uh, a massive banquet, but uh, starving people looking in and watching. And um, the obvious and rather heavy-handed way it's kind of put together is to say, look, you have great wealth and you were enjoying yourself and you have a, had, a, no doubt, a fantastic Christmas meal. But two thirds of the world are starving. Um, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and um, that's the opener of the conversation. Displaced persons. Today, more than 20 years after. Quite a few of them. Still around. The barbed wire set. How can you eat like this when you know that they're right there staring at you? Why not? Oh, it takes a special breed to stuff himself in front of Star. Get the point there, old boy. You really did. Well, it takes a special breed indeed. But you see, I don't happen to be a breed, Mr. Grudge. I'm a ghost. I don't have a heart. I don't have a soul. No nerve endings. No brain center. I'm just a reflection. But then I've already told you that. Shall I now tell you how many times you've stuffed yourself while two-thirds of the world starved in a cage? Yeah. Throw him a bone. Don't you talk to me like that. I have feelings. Nothing on this earth can force me to eat while starving people watch me. Watching makes all the difference, what? You never saw them while tearing into your mashed potatoes. They weren't actually there when you buttered your bread. There. Better, Mr. Grudge? Appetite back? Do. Sit down. And then finally, the ghost of Christmas future, which is played by Robert Shaw, who gives him a tour across this desolate landscape. And that desolate landscape is um, effectively of a destroyed world. And the survivors in it are obsessed with themselves and... At the core, it has a really cool OTT performance from Peter Sellers. And this is the bit that works the best out the entire production. Mainly because it's far more dr- dramatic, far more dra- you know, it's a drama rather than a debate. It's something that plays out in front of the screen. And, um, and the most interesting thing is Peter Sellers has literally nothing at all. He is, he, all he has is a hat and he declares himself kind of like, you know, emperor of me kind of thing 
and um, it leads to lynching uh, for anyone who steps out of line and kind of, you know, argues that they should be brought together. Um, and they're victims of the fact that they have nothing and all they've ever known is war. And even at this stage, when there's nothing left, they're still willing to scrap over whoever the other person is. And um, I think the image of, well, it's not a, it's not a hanging. It's um, a man who gets ostracized from the group, but that man's black. And I think that was, uh, will have still certainly in 64 have um, been quite a heavy blow uh, for viewers and, and quite strong to see. Now, folks, the first item on uh, today's agenda is this business. If the people from uh, down yonder and the people from Cross River wanting to come in here and talk about what they call our mutual problems. Mm. Our common differences. Mm. Now, do you want to talk, 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 talk about our problems? They want to debate, debate, debate about solutions until somehow they get their problems solved. They want to waste our time. They want us to commit ourselves to that kind of surrender. They don't come out in so many words and say that they want to take us over. <laughs> They're too clever for that. But that's what they want. They want to take over us, individual me. And if we let them seep in here from down yonder on Cross River, if we let these do-gooders, these bleeding hearts, propagate their insidious doctrine of involvement among us, then, my dear friend, my beloved me, we's in trouble. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not spoiling it. It's, 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 it's a carol for, you know, it's a Christmas carol. You know what happens? Grudge sees the bent error of his ways. Except, in Salem's version, he kind of doesn't. Our last scene is that he's a little bit nicer to the staff. He thinks. He sits quietly. He looks out. He doesn't have the glorious, over-dramatic revelations of Ebenezer beating around the head with his own death until he crumples. No. Grudge sits there and drinks coffee and thinks about what he's done and enjoys his Christmas morning. He's more civil. And that's where it leaves us, with this kind of... Oh. <laughs> In fact, I feel like maybe Salem or they, the production, is saying that Grudge is the viewer. That, you know, at best we're going to just take on this quite lengthy lecture about the nature of war and the need for cooperation. Just take it on board and then move on. Which isn't possibly what the, um, what most people would normally accept from a Christmas. And also, 
thinking about why it didn't do very well. Who watches Christmas Carol, uh, Christmas Carol after Christmas Day? No one does, surely. It's, you know, you, you watch your Christmas Eve or, or, or the week before. Once Boxing Day's come and gone, that, that story is, feels really late. <laughs> I would, I would argue. So maybe that's part, part of the reason why it didn't get the, the, you know, the, the, the love that it, it probably deserved. You're probably wondering why I mentioned Peter Fonda as Marley, because he blatantly isn't in it. Well, apparently those scenes were cut, deleted, although he is seen on a portrait on the wall. The ghost, as it were, holding out. Brett Eklund's in it. Barbara Ann Tears in it. Percy Rodriguez. It's a huge cast. Now, Henry Mancini uh, wrote the theme music, as we've already said, and it's actually recorded for his 1966 holiday LP, A Very Mancini Christmas, although I've played a clip of it already for you. So you can't get it on DVD. It's available online as a bootleg. Um, a very tatty bootleg at that. It kind of gets shown around, um, school. It was shown around schools for a long time on 16mm. And it's actually available to be seen at the Paley Center for Media in New York and Los Angeles. And the film and TV car archive at the University of California. But as we said, in 2012, TCM did show it again. And uh, I think, I'm hoping, and one of the reasons why I'm putting this out is that some of you will have watched it. If not, Google it. It's there um, on on a couple of web on a couple of streaming websites. Uh, so why didn't it work though? I mean, I've already kind of said to a point elements which caused it problems. So Mankiewicz, I think, um, created a um, a film which which felt quite stagey in reality. It's not, there's not got a lot of scope considering the fact that it cost four million dollars. He was, you know, and that seems strange because, you know, he was, he worked at Paramount and MGM, 20th Century Fox. You know, he won Free Wives, he directed, sorry, Letter to Free Wives, All About Eve. He was a great writer as well. He wrote, you know, screenplays, uh, including the Philadelphia story. So he knew how to get the best out of people, but for here, he just, it just doesn't quite mesh. And part of that is, has to go down to Salem. He takes the opportunity to, um, give a very lengthy speech. He obviously, from the looks of it, was really keen on doing the last bit, the Peter Sellers bit, because that's the most, feels the most Salem of everything that's there. And I would argue it's worth watching it for that section alone. But you have to get a long way to get to there. It's hard going. It is being like being talked down to. And Mankiewicz can't do enough to kind of break the fact that it is big swathes of text. That's something we spoke a lot about on Night Gallery. Um, that Salen's always better when he's tight and he has like 20 minutes to work with. And in this case, um, he had, you know, a great expanse to work with and a, a quite a rigid structure and he basically filled the time with his words. And I know it's black and white, I know it's telly, but um there's a problem with that, I think, particularly when you're kind of covering these really heavy bases of you know, dead chil you know, dead children. Do you affect you you run a very you run a very literal and real possibility that you're going to be lecturing grown middle-aged men who saw that or her you know 
watch their children go to war to die and then lecture them about it. And Salen storms in there and he does it. And uh, and I think that's probably why people felt really uncomfortable about it. And also, it wouldn't have been re-shown anyway. It was basically bought. A huge advert bought space. Good morning, Ruby. Good morning, Mr. Grudge. Let's talk a bit as well about how it was originally envisaged and the fact that it's four, four, four million dollars, four million dollars they spent on it. It ran its problems initially, right? It, there was a production company that was set up to create these short, well, short, these standalone movies for the UN and Xerox. It was called Telson. Now, originally, the plan was it was going to be broadcast simultaneously on all the major US networks. CBS and NBC told them to do one. ABC agreed to run the film. The only thing that we really wanted to do was to change the name from Benjamin Grudge or Begrudge in a in a kind of a punny nickname. But they kind of thought that it. But ABC, in their incredibly weary and worried way, wanted to, were worried that they would kind of rub up against a right wing political dandelion called Barry Goldwater because of the initials, which sounds crazy now. But hey, that's TV. And uh, so he became Daniel Grudge instead. Doesn't quite carry the same pun. The film is very dark. That's probably why. And we've kind of discussed that. And also, I think probably bad timing was a, a pretty key area for this. It's been, it's been, it, it fell into obscurity. But as I've said, Peter Sellers makes it worth watching. It's definitely worth watching just for being a curio. It's a fascinating folly. Spend all that money on something that effectively gets run right slap bang in the Christmas schedules. Normally, light affair, you kind of, you know, today's, you know, Christmas stories invariably involve a character winning. They have, they start in a place, things get worse, or they are in a, in a they are a dark person, they, things get worse for them, they have a revelation, a bit of Christmas magic happens, either with it's the community or pitching in, or supernatural elements, or the spirit of Christmas, or ghostly or religious elements come in and they are able to enjoy their Christmas. That's standard, that's standard fare. That does not happen in this show. What happens is you have Grudge in a in one place. He's argued around for a considerable length of time about stuff that the audience at the time would be touchy on, no doubt. And then he kind of takes it on board and then has his breakfast. That's kind of it. And let's bear in mind as well, Carol Film of Christmas earned two Emmy noms, one for outstanding individual, individual achievements in entertainment for the art direction and set direction. I'm assuming that almost certainly will be for the scenes of uh, Hiroshima. And... Um, Outstanding program achievements entertainment for Mankiewicz for his direction. So it did get noted. 
despite the fact that critically it weren't that popular. It's um, Carol Serlin's widow says that it didn't get the attention it should have. I haven't seen it in so long. It is downbeat and probably not just downbeat in terms of Christmas Carol, but really downbeat for Serlin as well. You see, when we're talking about Twilight Zone, the ones that deal with social change always end up quite optimistic that we can do something, that things will change and get better. And the reason for that is Grudge himself has no ability to change anything that's happening. He's merely just won over by by the arguments. He can't then stop us all killing each other. He hasn't got a hand on a button. The Christmas revelations effectively changed the views of one man. And that's it. So, I mean... (laughs) For sale, even for sale, and this is grey. But why? Why is it like this? Why did Rod kind of turn around and kind of go, I'm going to, you know, why did he write something that is this bleak? Well, it was a bit of a rubbish year in 1964. you got the Cuban Missile Crisis. JFK gets assassinated. And it looks suspiciously like Vietnam is about to happen. And... It coloured Salem. It changed his views. It was a bleak year. And a year that saw the end of Twilight Zone. And this was his response to the world he saw around him. Basically, Salem's head was not in a good place. And this, and he saw some pretty horrible things coming and violence on violence on violence. And in a way, he was right. Let's talk a little bit about these reviews. Variety said it was generalised to the extreme and ultimately a disappointment. Mark Zickery, obviously a lot later on, has wrote, Similar's two poles in his writing. There's his powerful human-orientated writing and his very didactic writing and Carol Fors on the didactic side. And I think you, you can't argue with that. Let's think about this a bit differently. Yes, there are some broad brushstrokes in there. The general, I mean, Variety has ang- it obviously angered the reviewer of Variety because saying the arguments are generalised is painting it with a very, very unfortunate brush and in reality not giving it the credit it deserves. Yes, it is broad in its tone, as is Christmas. I mean, obviously, it's the lengthy conversations about war. And let's be honest with you, Grudge is not a nice person, a pretty horrible man, but he's haunted by the death of his son on Christmas Eve. And there's no way that there aren't going to be people watching that at that time who kind of went, it would have really, really hit home for a lot of people, that. And 
you know, I always think it's a funny one. There's two ways of looking at Christmas Carol. It's either about a man who uh, sees the error of his ways and changes, or it's about a man who is distraught after the death of his ma- of his friend and becomes even more like him in an attempt to remember him and is haunted by Christmas because his friend died then. And somebody who was a bad, he was a bad person before, but got worse from that grief. Then he has some kind of night terror and everyone likes him. Not because he's drastically changed, but because he puts his hand in his pocket. Now that's an extreme way to look at a Christmas carol. But a carol for another Christmas effectively was, that's the story was seen in those kind of broad brushstrokes by the viewer and certainly by that review. It's about a man who is troubled by his son and his death, who is then has, is visited by spirits who basically are beaten around the head with what war will do to society and civilization until he agrees. And I'm fairly sure a lot of the critics and probably some of the reviewers, the viewers as well, probably felt the same. And it's a very different message, Dickens, particularly if you're expecting that Dickens, that Dickensian tale, it merely really just uses the structure. So it's close. It's close to its, it's close to its, um, close to home for a lot of viewers. And it's a downer, definitely. But I think for lovers of Rod Sale, and I think it's a, a good thing to watch, a good thing to look at. And the reason for that is mainly because it's interesting. It's interesting to see where Salem was at that time, where his head was. It's interesting to see somebody who sees the opportunity to write a Christmas story and basically just decides to turn it into this. He doesn't try. Salem used he normally would sugarcoat the pill, and he didn't this time. And uh, I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting mainly because I think, I believe he's reflecting the society that he's currently seeing. And um, sometimes you don't want broad brushstrokes. You want rather brutal force to kind of get your points across. And in this time and in this occasion, I think that's what Salem went for. So, yeah. Seek it out if you haven't. Uh I think I probably, you know, I've curbed your enthusiasm probably for it. But it really is an interesting watch and something that's very different to what we normally would get. So sit back, take a little drink perhaps, and prepare to see a very bleak world that Salem creates for us. And I kind of like that, to be fair. I kind of like the fact that it's so bleak. I like the fact that it, it doesn't try and cow town or... or, or sugarcoat the pill i like the fact that salem's basically gone you know what this is how i say it this is what it is and uh as i said despite its kind of distinctly unchristmasy christmasness it is um quite the festive curia seems the conclusion is inevitable There must be involvement. Every man's death does diminish me. It appears we've run out of the luxury of alternatives, Fred. 
find ourselves living in a world in which we either greet the morning or accept the night. So I wish you a Merry Christmas, Fred. And a good morning. Merry Christmas, Uncle. Right, well, thank you. Uh, unsurprisingly, no feedback because uh, I haven't done a podcast for two years on this stream. This podcast has a new home. If this is the first one you've listened to, uh, it's a bit different to this normally. Um, you can, and if you go to uh, gentlemansgrindshouserecords.com and uh, you'll be able to hopefully find them all. Um, uh that's the new home for the Night Gallery podcast. Uh, all the episodes of that, when I went through every episode of the Night Gallery from start to finish, of your store, I should say. Uh, so it's about 100 episodes of that. Uh, there is the Twilight Zone podcast, which Tom has taken over the reins of. And uh, the, I saw a new episode go up that recently. There's Tom's uh, and two, well, two other of Tom Elliott's shows, uh, The Gentleman's Grind House, which uh, he was his original show when he first started, and his new project, The Strange and Deadly Show, which uh, I occasionally make the odd little appearance on. If you want more from me uh, that's not Night Gallery related, uh, I've just finished another project called The Video Nasties Podcast, which is available at videonastiespodcast.com. Uh, that's far more horror orientated, and I've got a new show coming in the new year called A History of Horror. So, it's just for me now to say thank you for listening and indulging me with this uh, non-Night Gallery-related Night Gallery podcast episode. Um, all I need to say now really is I wish you all a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and uh, I hope to see you all in the new year for a new show. So take care. I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye.